welcome to today's ELT CPD podcast and the second in our mini-series on diversity and inclusion. Today we'll be talking specifically about race and ethnicity with our expert James Warwick. Hi James, how are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. We're really excited to hear what you've got to say about race and ethnicity in publishing. Yeah, no problem. Excited to be here. So um, maybe let's start just by you telling us a little bit about yourself and who you are and what you do. Sure. So um, I'm a digital product manager at the moment for Pearson. I was formerly a content developer or content creation specialist. Um, and in, in both of these roles, I hire writers and editors. Um, and in my current role, I conceptualize digital applications for, for English language learners. Perfect. So you come across sort of freelance writers and editors quite often, would you say, in your job at the moment? or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're in a we're in a process of finding and developing new projects. So yeah, I'm I'm always looking out. Perfect. Okay, so today we're talking about diversity and inclusion in ELT publishing. So specifically, race and ethnicity. So, what do you think are some of the biggest issues and challenges to overcome in publishing at the moment related to this? Well, in the field of ELT publishing, um, I think ELT publishing has often been seen as quite an ivory tower profession where um, only a few select teachers make it into writing or, or editing and very few make it to the inner sanctum of this ivory tower where they're actually working in-house and have the ability to commission teachers. At least when I was first starting out, I found it very, very difficult to enter into the profession and it's not. It wasn't necessarily a, a, an issue of race. It was. It, it seemed as though it was locked off um, and guarded to to people who weren't already in that profession of, of writing and editing. So there were and are still, I think, serious barriers to entry, especially for teachers who may not have had that experience um, and maybe from a different cultural background. Uh, where they, they their immediate surroundings don't provide them that, that level of experience. So you started out as a teacher then in ELT? Yeah, yeah, I was a teacher for six years. And what barriers did you find? Did you find that it was difficult to break into publishing or what were the steps that you took to get into that? So publishing was, was the real kind of barrier. Um, entering teaching, you know, we all have the same qualifications, the CELTA or DELTA, that was fine, uh, you know, and I could find a job relatively easily. It was mainly when I was trying to make that transition from um, teacher to working in-house uh, as, as an editor that I found the most difficult. Hmm, it's interesting you say that because it makes me wonder if there's teachers who also feel the same, that there's barriers of going from a teacher to publishing. So you work with um, lots of freelance writers and editors, as you said, in your position in Pearson. Um, so how do you think we can encourage writers specifically to use more inclusive practices in their materials writing? Um, are there any things that you think they should consider, for example? So this was an interesting one. Um, I've spent the last year, year and a half now, um, developing these set of guidelines for Pearson. And they are called the Race and Ethnicity Guidelines. I worked with a fantastic team led by Adika Chegua. And we developed a set of principles um, to help facilitate authors uh, in their selection of, of materials, whether that's images or texts. Um, and the four main principles behind it were, firstly, underrepresentation, which is perhaps the most obvious one, limited positive associations, missing stories, and finally, uh, the problem frame. 
And so those are foundational to ensuring that we represent all diverse communities and cultures um, in ELT materials as we often kind of skew very Eurocentric in, in the stuff that we publish currently. That's really interesting. So so a couple of things. So firstly, the, the guidelines that you mentioned, are they sort of publicly available or are they just in-house at the moment? So I think people would be really interested to hear more about that. Yeah, so they, they are currently in the final stages of development. I okay. feel like I've talked about them for a while. They're, fi- they're in the final stages of development and they will be published Q1 2021. So they will come out this year alongside Pearson's other guidelines around um, the women in leadership. Um, guidelines which is around gender equality also the ABLE guidelines which are around uh, disability and and spectrum which are releasing their own guidelines around LGBTQ plus um, equality so it's all going to be very neatly packaged into um, this new editorial policy that's coming out this year. Perfect I think it's really really essential that um, every freelance you work with has access to those I think that would be really important when they are when they are released and shared widely. Um, so let's go back to the four points that you mentioned. Maybe sure. you can explain what's meant by each term, maybe give some examples and just elaborate yeah. a little bit more. So firstly, underrepresentation. What, what do you mean by that specifically? So underrepresentation is, is the obvious. I mean, if you flick through a book and there are no um, diverse faces, and by diverse I don't just mean black, I mean Indian, South Asian. You know, if, if there's no diversity on the surface from a visual level, at least with the images, then you know that there's a level of underrepresentation, especially in an ELT book. But going beyond that is really where teachers and writers need to start, you know, critically evaluating their material. Have they chosen sources for their reading texts that are diverse, feature diverse characters, come from different cultural perspectives? Underrepresentation is not just images and throwing a few black and white mm-hmm. and, and Chinese and Asian images in there. Yeah. It's around critically evaluating the materials that you're choosing in your writing to reflect a culture or series of cultures that are different to your own perspective. And the the evaluation process of doing that is what we want to start getting into the habit of. Do you think maybe there's a challenge because ELT might be, well, a lot of teachers might be based in Australia, the USA, England, for example, and maybe some of the sources that people are using, maybe they don't have access or don't know where to find those things. Could that be one of the issues as well, maybe? Could be. And I mean, it's not really, I'm not saying that this is anyone's fault. I'm just highlighting the the current state of affairs. If if it requires a little bit more work to look at and find and, and really analyse whether this text is appropriate, they should get into the habit of, of doing that so that we're not just so Eurocentric or, or yeah. um, America-centric or Australia-centric. We just need to start opening our worldview a bit. And I know teachers and, and I know writers who are currently doing this um, and doing some great work, but I think that on a kind of, uh, within the industry itself, if we could get into this habit, that would be, that'd be fantastic. Perfect. Um, let's move on to the next point that you mentioned. So limited positive associations. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? So what often happens in ELT and not, not just ELT, but publishing more broadly is that we start to attach ourselves to um, a few good instances of diverse achievements. So we may talk about the Serena Williams or we may talk about the Sundar Pichai's or we may we may kind of attach ourselves to this ideal of 
what a certain person from a certain background is capable of. We may okay. think that someone who is black is more athletic or someone who is Asian is more um, technology focused and driven. But, but what you need to realise is that by showing those, uh, let's not call them representative, but, but those kind of people in that context, you are limiting a child or an adult's view of what they can achieve in society mm-hmm. their, their perspective yeah. is narrowed to becoming Usain Bolt Serena Williams um, you know or, or an actor or a musician there need to be more representative examples in science in other kind of STEM subjects or academic subjects <clears throat> not just not just this is not just an issue with race and ethnicity this is a broader DNI diversity issue limited positive associations is the kind of flip side to underrepresentation. You're showing representation, yeah. but in a very, very narrow frame. Hundred percent, and I really think that's something writers, editors, anyone that works in publishing maybe hasn't considered. As you said, they think about the underrepresentation, but but not the flip side. You get some really good examples there. Um, missing stories. What do you mean by this? Um, so missing stories is uh, a case where. You, you're, you're reporting on an event. Um, we often use Dunkirk as an example uh, in-house for, for training purposes. But if you're reporting on an event or a historical moment in time for, regarding kind of the British Empire or um, American prosperity, there are often untold stories um, that are underneath the kind of prosperity in Glasgow, the prosperity in uh, London, um, the Virginia, you know, there, there are places where slaves were integral to the contribution of that economic growth. Um, so this is not just applicable within ELT. Mm. Um, it's applicable yeah. in history, sociology um, and psychology and a, a whole gamut of textbooks. But within the context of ELT, it does mean just ensure that when you're writing about a text with a level of historical accuracy, you're considering all angles of that text. So, you know, we're very often, as writers, I know you're very often told to choose real text, find real authentic texts that are engaging. Fine, do that, but then also think about what are the other perspectives? Where are the missing stories here? Are there any missing stories here? If there aren't, that's fine, but it's something to consider. And how would writers go about that? Because I'm just thinking of it from their point of view, for example, say, let's use your Dunkirk example. If writers were to talk about sort of slaves being instrumental in in something, do you think publishing companies would, I don't want to sort of put them all in the same, tell them with the same brush, but do you think they would go for that? Or do you think they'd say, oh, that's maybe not appropriate? Or that's, you know, how do you think that would be taken? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I, I, I don't think... You know, there's a couple of taboo subjects within ELT, and they may be they may think this is to the to the line, but I think that it's still worth mentioning in the context what the real history was. So, for for instance, in Dunkirk, there were loads of Indian soldiers who came from the British Empire to assist in that battle. All all that needs to happen is a brief mention of the fact that this was the case, or an image of those soldiers. So images are, images are a big issue, but also the reference in that text of contributions of people who are from different backgrounds would also be a good start. Maybe the media is maybe misses these stories completely. It's quite prevalent in the media, sort of film, TV, things like that, newspapers. So 
say a writer were to look for an article online maybe maybe the media wouldn't include something like that so where would they even go to, to sort of find out the real history and those missing stories it just requires a bit of digging i mean i, I can't um <laughs> get asked to you to skew one way or the other in terms of political leanings but you know i know that the guardian for instance has a few uh, good kind of in-depth articles around history british history colonial mm-hmm. history um that you can that you can really look at and i know they're freely available in other places online as well so you can if you want to research uh, an event a historical event or period you can easily do that online and and find some more in-depth articles around it perfect thank you okay and finally the fourth point that you mentioned was the problem frame so if you could just elaborate on this if you've got any examples maybe so the problem frame is around um, how certain cultures and, and certain disadvantaged people from, from back, different backgrounds are boxed into becoming helpless. They're perceived as victims. Um, they are often talked about as degrading the cultural and societal uh, value. This can be in ghettos or in urban centres or you, you use certain um, loaded language to talk about people from these backgrounds that everyone knows there is a negative connotation to it. This could have been exacerbated by the media previously or it could be a new connotation that has sprung up that frames people in a certain way as detrimental to society as a whole and as helpless victims who, who aren't able to, to overcome their own uh, it could be either their own intellectual capacity to do something or are unable to get out of their own disadvantage. Okay, let's talk about um, publishing companies. So many publishing companies do have a severe lack of diversity. And today I was, I was reading and I saw quite a few comments on a post um, from a smaller publishing company. They sort of posted a picture of all of their writers and mm. there was a lack of representation in their author pool as well. Um, and I think they were sort of thinking about it from from another point of view as well that maybe they hadn't considered um what what do you think companies can do so publishing companies just to build a more diverse and representative author pool so this is an interesting one and we've uh, i know that within pearson we've conducted a survey with all of our authors um, and editors and contributors to find out more around what their where they come from what their um orientation is what their whether they are disabled or um, what their race and ethnicity is and and the reason we're doing this is so that we can find out where there's more work to be done and I think it's incumbent on all of the publishing companies to look at who they're hiring often they are friends of a publisher or friends of an editor or friends of you know someone who's just joined the company and this closed circle is really what makes it difficult for people who are um, non-native or may not have interacted with this small social circle to actually enter the industry. It's not that they're they're any worse or better than than people who are friends of publishers or friends of editors. It is that there is no ladder of access being provided to people who are non-native teachers or who are teachers who weren't within the proximity of that uh, rising star publisher when they first joined the industry. This is this this kind of close-knit circle of, of depending on people who you know and who you like is really endemic within ELT. So there need to be 
a wider net cast to be able to actually uh, send out, get solicitations from, from authors from uh, a wide range of backgrounds internationally who are teachers, who are uh, maybe first time writers, so that we can provide that initial access for them to join and we can nurture talent as publishers. That is something that we should be doing. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, and I think, as you said, um, if you're not in that network, I mean, how can teachers maybe from international environments, maybe like a teacher from Brazil, for example, would it be more likely that if they wanted to get into writing, they'd have to apply only to their branch in their company? If a publishing company had like a branch in Brazil, for example, or could they write for an international audience? Because I know you have sort of localised course books, so... Yeah, and this is part of the problem. Um, Some of the best teachers that I ever toured alongside were well there was one who was uh, Brazilian and she was absolutely incredible the the opportunity for that teacher being from Brazil and going back to Brazil and teaching in Brazil um, the opportunity there is narrower it seems as though local publishers tap into their local resource of ELT teachers Mm -hmm. and those are the people who are made who are kind of given the opportunity to produce textbooks for their local audience so secondary or primary textbooks but there is top tier talent there there's top talent within those geographies so the central organization if your organization is this big and is structured this way the central organization whether that's in the uk or the us needs to be able to tap into that talent that is available at those local levels Um, they may have market specific knowledge Mm -hmm. which is fantastic but they also have general knowledge of how to write ELT materials. So tapping into that, that knowledge, developing those, uh, that, that talent from, from the writers and from the editors in those geographies is, is huge. I mean, that's a huge missed opportunity. So yes, if your business is that large, you can start to do that. If your business is smaller, then you can send out application forms online. Use online as your primary recruitment tool for authors and editors. Look at publications, look at who has been published that is uh, an author in in a local geography um, or someone who is doing a great job that you might want to recruit. So there are plenty of ways and I refuse to believe that um, companies can't do this. There there are so many ways that they, they can. Do you think it's more of an active thing that the publishing company has to do rather than the teacher or teacher going into writing, seeking out that opportunity. I think, think so, it's but, it's, but it's no more active than what they're currently doing. They, they just need to, you know, I know they receive proposals and they go with those proposals, but it's no more active than nurturing the next generation of talent. I mean, once the authors and editors that they work with currently want to retire or want to leave the industry, where is that next level of talent coming from? Where are the younger authors? Mm-hmm. Where are the authors from different backgrounds? So. It's, it's just an, a progression. So it shouldn't be yeah, that difficult for them to be able to just reach out and recruit those from, from different cultural backgrounds or younger authors or younger editors um, to be able to diversify the industry a bit. Perfect, yeah, definitely. So we do have a question from a listener now that was sent in. So how can writers and publishers realistically find out if materials are sensitive but also confront real issues? So, I mean, there's the standard parsnip stuff, uh, political, alcohol, religion, etc., that they were not allowed to use as uh, publishers. I think this was probably set as a standard way back when. But 
you know, sensitivity is subjective. So I think we have a set of kind of rules and guidelines in our editorial policy, at least within within Pearson, and I'm sure other companies have the same standards. Um, I think it just requires a real look at where the world is currently. So where where do we fall on a global spectrum? Where do we fall in a local political spectrum? Are there countries that ban certain activities that are illegal? Are they being decriminalised? Um, what what are the barriers that exist within those markets that you intend to publish in. If you're intending it for a UK audience, there's more you could probably get away with. If you're intending it for a Saudi Arabia or Chinese audience or um, any audience where there are more stringent laws as, as they relate to diversity and uh, EDI, then you're going to need to take that into consideration because the book still has to sell, mm-hmm. um, but there needs to be, you know, companies need to make a global stance and then adapt for a local audience. So obviously there are localised course books which cater to the needs of specific geographies that maybe don't take a more global DNI stance. So do you think these will always be a thing or I don't know. I don't know. I mean I can't speak to the future of um, ELT but but I know that in my current role, you know, more and more ELT teaching is becoming um, digitized and there's different ways of online teaching. So I don't know whether They'll be localised as such, but I, I think that having one singular online version um, like Udemy, Coursera and our, our English.com kind of platforms are potentially the way that we're going to go. And we're going to go to a singular course based system where if people want to buy into those courses, mm-hmm. then they can. But we've taken a global DEI stance okay. um, right. on those courses. so. Okay, so just a final question. Again, another question from a listener. Um, Is there anything that people that work in ELT, whether it's publishing in-house or whether it's teachers or writers or editors, can do to sort of further research this if they're interested or to to learn more themselves about race and ethnicity in publishing? Yeah, so there are two things that are happening this year, um, early this year. The first is um, a, a launch of the race and ethnicity guidelines in and of themselves which will be publicised on Pearson.com, I think, Pearson's website, that will that will offer kind of further reading on race and ethnicity guidelines. There's also the editorial policy that I mentioned that's coming out this year. But it really starts with looking at those topics that I mentioned earlier and looking at the content that you've written and thinking, does the content that I've written as a holistic piece of writing, whether it's a course book, or a workbook, um, whatever it is, does what I've written abide by the principles that that I've mentioned, underrepresentation, limited positive association, missing stories and the problem frame? Mm -hmm. Doing a content audit on yourself of a previous piece of work that you've written is always a good place to start. I think once you've done that, once you've assessed how am I writing content, who am I including in those images, who am I including in the text, doing that initial piece of work will help you then become a better writer. So thanks so much for being on the show today, James. I think you've really touched on some good points and I think we can get together sort of a blog post or or just some more information that we can post for writers and publishing companies to consider the points that you mentioned. Brilliant. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, and, thanks for um, having me. Thanks very much. Cheers. 
So thanks so much to James for being on the show today to talk about race and ethnicity in ELT publishing and to you guys for sending in your questions. The final podcast in this mini series on diversity and inclusion will be next month. So do send any questions you have into info at eltcpd.com. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Bye.